0: Hi, and welcome to The Beagle Has Landed. I am your host, Laura Hersher. Doing this show is a privilege each and every time. But if I had a favorite, and I don't have a favorite, because I'm a mother and I love all my podcasts exactly the same. But if I had a favorite type of show, it might be the book talk. Even though book talks are extra work, because yes, I do read the books and um and i like a snappy 240 characters as much as the next person but there's nothing like a book and if you've forgotten that well perhaps we can remind you today that some topics merit a longer and more nuanced conversation so today we have adam rutherford returning to the show with his new book control the dark history and troubling present of eugenics and i always love reading adam's writing because he knows the science he knows the history and he brings you through it in a way that feels like a conversation um, and not a lecture, so Adam is ironically enough someone you might know from Twitter. He's trained as a research scientist in genetics at uCL uh, but has made a name for himself as a science communicator across many media TV books, and yes, social media. Adam, so nice to have you on the show today.
1: It's lovely to be back, Laura. Thank you for having me, yeah.
0: So um, I found this book, Control, um, eminently readable, really entertaining. Um, It's a history of eugenics. Today, eugenics is very much a toxic word. It's as loaded as saying someone is like Hitler and for precisely the same reason. Um, But it didn't start out that way. There's an argument to be made that eugenics was a well-intentioned idea gone gone bad. Um, Do you buy that?
1: I think it was always well intentioned at its inception. Whether or not it was always a good idea or not is up to depend. It it really depends on who is uh, who who is saying it. So the word itself, eugenics, is it's a neologism that Francis Galton coined in um, the late 19th century, and and it he he needed a word to describe the the scientification of birth control in the post-Darwinian world. And he landed on eugenics, meaning sort of, sort of well-born. So you from the Greek goods, genus meaning, you know, generational born. So it sort of means well-born or good genes. You might say today this is in the pre-genetic era. And the intention was to improve the, the I'm using air quotes here for the listeners, that the, the quality of the British stock of people such that. We would be healthier and more intelligent and more productive and all of those uh, admirable traits that everyone wants of their family and children and, and, and kin and creed and country. The problem is, though, that who gets to make those decisions is determined by the powerful at that time. And if you're Francis Galton or the ruling parties in Britain or America or around Western Europe where this is being discussed, then the decisions about who gets to reproduce and who gets preserved into the future and who gets their, their reproductive rights restricted is entirely determined by hegemonic power structures. So their intention was, what was they thought it was noble. In in retrospect, we can look back and think, well, it was grotesquely unfair and had all the hallmarks of being an ableist. Um, racist white supremacist and misogynistic uh set of policies Um, this is
0: a little this is a little diversion but when i was reading the book i was thinking galton man would make a great movie right (laughs) here's this like tortured who'd play him but he's 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 like the (laughs) tortured grandson and cousin of sort of greater men you know I, I saw a family history, a pedigree drawn of the, probably by, by Galton, to be honest, of the the Darwin family, which he was a part that was that, where the, the whole pedigree was um, brilliance, mathematical genius, and then other normal children. Right. Like that was <laughs> what it was indicating. And I thought, oh, my God, I thought it was rough growing up in my family. You know, like,
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, he was a strange man for sure. And. I think it's fair to say that he lived somewhat in the shadow of, of Darwin. He was he was brilliant. He was a genius in many ways, um, and I think that Darwin tolerated him uh, and had his sort of adoration. They, politically they weren't particularly well aligned, but um, I think he was he was brilliant in many ways, but lacked such insight into his own prejudices. So he was he was an amazing scientist in, in one respect, in, in, in that he created all sorts of new statistical techniques and invented all sorts of useful and also completely wacky things. First person to draw a weather map. Um, he was very instrumental in, in, um, the, in, in working out that fingerprints were not um, heritable and that they were unique to individuals. And that became the basis of forensic fingerprinting. He was one of the first people to talk about synesthesia. In in the English language and did a lot of work in that, did a lot of work to debunk phrenology uh, because he thought the data wasn't good enough. He invented a hat with vents in it to aid hard thinking and help cool your head down. That didn't really catch on. Ironically, given that he was a massive racist, he also invented the dog whistle, the literal dog whistle that dogs can hear (laughs) at a frequency higher than human hearing. And and I think it's hilarious that that's become the, the idea of a racist dog whistle was the was created by well the dog whistle itself was created by a man who is a huge racist. So he yeah he is a fascinating oddball, and his legacy is is colossal not just in weather maps or fingerprinting or the the the, the weird things that didn't really catch on but really because he is the person who gives an enormous sort of turbocharge uh, a scientified version of ideas which are much older which is population control through pairing people um through infanticide and, and in the 20th century it becomes through enforced sterilization and that really is his his major legacy
0: uh, you talk a bit about the differences between the us and the uk in terms of eugenics which is normally maybe unnecessarily called positive eugenics and negative eugenics right one being more about Sterilization or uh, forcing people to not have mar- marriage, marriage restrictions, sterilization, immigration reforms. In other words, just keeping the bad blood out. And in Britain, before like positive marriages, better marriages, sort of creating the kind of Ubermensch situation, right? Like, you know, and I, it's interesting, you're talking about, I, I always thought of that as sort of. Team Mendel and Team Darwin, that the British were like with their homeboy, because, <laughs> because if you think about it, until the unification uh, in, the, in the 20th century, uh, Darwinian genetics and Mendelian genetics were kind of opposites, right? Like Mendel was about how things were preserved exactly the same through time. Um, whether they were like unit characters, so, so so they weren't melded together, they were just, you know, preserved and recessive inheritance, particularly preserving things perhaps over so generations after generations, and even if they were in hiding. And Darwin was all about change, like how we change. So one was about stasis, and one was about change. And um, yeah, so I always thought of it that way is that um, that that and that, of course, the US went for the Mendelian. Because we were very concerned about bad blood, because we had this horrible problem of being a, a, you know, a terribly racist society that was trying to, and and a society of immigrants. So we were concerned about like the um, infiltration of the gene pool before we knew such a thing.
1: I I think it's a, I think it's a really interesting characterization. It's not one that I've I've picked up specifically, but I think you're on. I I think it's a good idea. The, The Americans certainly did. Embrace Mendelian, what was then brand new. So you know, retranslated for the first time in 1900, and then it becomes available to the to to um in the English language and the uh, the the science world in particularly in Britain and America. But Charles Davenport, who is the sort of the, the Francis Galton, the um the main guy for eugenics in America, he comes back to he visits he visits the UK and he meets Galton, and he comes back to America reinvigorated and endorsed by Galton with a sense of just the absolute certainty of Mendelian inheritance patents. That had been revealed to the world in his pea plants, which is still, you know, one of the great experiments of of all time. The demonstration that these units of inheritance, which we now call genes, are how information is transferred from generation to generation. But Davenport takes this with such religious fervour. It is a religious fervour for him and and comes rapidly to the conclusion um, with his acolytes at the newly founded Cold Spring Harbor um, Eugenics Records Office. That everything in humans is is perfectly Mendelian, that you can trace the patterns of eye color and hair color and some diseases like Huntington's. So Davenport was foundational in, in, in the first reports of those three very Mendelian traits, but also, you know, really complex things like Sexual proclivities or uh, seafaringness is one that he thought was was perfectly Mendelian, which is completely bonkers to our ears today. But complex diseases, things that we recognize have high degrees of heritability, but are not straightforwardly Mendelian because they are the the genetic component to their heritability involves. We now know in the 21st century, dozens, if not hundreds of minor, of, of small but cumulative variations but for 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 Davenport, it was it was everything is Mendelian. So the point of the ERO, the Eugenics Records Office, was to go out and harvest these family trees, not just of individual families, but basically of the whole of America. So if you have the family tree of 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 white white Americans, you have the you have the framework on which you can see Mendelian patterns of everything, both desirable and undesirable traits. The the English who who, the, the, the british i mean they were mostly english they were mostly in my department at ucl um, people like carl pearson and later um ronald fisher um were much more circumspect but no less passionate about eugenics they were much more circumspect about the about the stats and davenport had a bit of a reputation for being a bit sloppy in his Analysis and indeed Pearson, carl Pearson, one of the founders of of biology, modern biology, statistics, and all sorts of areas of of science that we continue to use today. He he thought that Davenport's work wasn't up to scratch and wrote several papers during the first two decades of the 20th century, saying the American eugenicists. Are in danger of damaging the international reputation of this movement because their work isn't good enough. Now uh, it's things like that that you read. I, you know, you read the originals of those those papers in the 19. You know, I think 1909 was one of them, and 1914 was another, and think, oh right, okay, so they're really against the American eugenics now being enacted through enforced sterilization in multiple states, but not because eugenics is a bad thing, but because their data is and their their results is is no good. So, yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: You, you write this. I, I, I underline this. I can't work out if this is an admirable stance or not to criticize something <laughs> grotesque because it's, it is not rigorous enough in its grotesqueness.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, there are a few glints of of levity in this subject, but I do try and <laughs> highlight some of them because. It's, you know, it's all very well us looking back and some of the listeners will be thinking, well, you know, you can't judge people by today's standards, of course. And you can't judge 19th century or early 20th century geneticists by by the things that we know to be true or untrue in the genomic age. And of course, that is correct. But what is what is striking to me? Is how readily people like Davenport and politicians, it's not just scientists, it's, it's the chattering classes and the political classes and the business classes, who are so very willing, very quickly, to adopt uh, new science, things that are really poorly understood, that are really fresh out of the box, and they're willing to adopt them as truths, as gospel, not just in a scientific sense, but things on which policy should be enacted. And in America, well, in in the UK, having invented this, this whole sort of pseudoscience, I call it now, and it is a pseudoscience, but at the time it was science, in England, we never legislated for it. It doesn't quite mean that there wasn't eugenics in the UK, but there, it was never part of the statutes. But in America, that was embraced wholeheartedly from 1907 onwards with enforced sterilisation in more than 30 states. But it's it, what really interests me in, in my work in, in, as a as a science communicator and as a, a sort of sort of cosplaying science historian, but really as a geneticist who's thinking about how genetics interacts with the rest of society the thing that i am interested most in is how how is the speed at which these science becomes marshalled or co-opted into pre-existing political ideologies and golden comes at just the right time in a time of you know western expansion british colonialism at its absolute peak um, huge immigration waves into America. Some, you know, crazy numbers. Fifteen million people um, come to America between the year 1900 and 1914. And so it's the primary concern of most people in the in the discourse in in America. And what the Davenport's, also the, the Rockefellers and the Carnegies. And Teddy Roosevelt and others, what they do is they they ask the scientists for validation for what they already think that needs to happen, which is purging of the weak, or the end of immigration, or protection of their own people over others, over descendants of the enslaved or indigenous people, or you know the Irish immigrants or the Italian immigrants or whoever is coming. So it, it's it, it's partially a history. Of the, of the science but it's really w- w- what where, where i'm focused is in that sort of liminal space between the lab and the, the 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 white house or the 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 clubs and socials where this was being engineered by well-intentioned philanthropists at the beginning you know in the jazz age it's a it's a it's a jazz age phenomenon
0: yeah i mean i think it's in, in that same vein, I think it's really interesting that uh, Galton's grandfather, Erasmus Darwin, uh, very famously, sort of very publicly, you know, sort of was a non-believer. Right. And in, in England the in UK, you had this class system where people had ruled for over the centuries and the rationale was this is the way God intended. God intended you to be down here and me to be up here. And if you took God out of the picture, you needed a new rationale for the class system. And I always feel that uh, that's what he was after Galton. He was like, okay, it's not about God saying that I belong to be in the ruling class. We're actually just better. And and I'm going to create this elaborate thing to prove it.
1: I think that's very insightful. And it's an argument that I wrote in in early drafts and then decided to remove because I think it needed more unpacking than I wanted to give it time to. But I think it's exactly right. And what they do do and what I do discuss in the book is that those guys, Galton and the all of the other eugenicists in, in Britain, who incidentally have all gone to the same private schools the top fee-paying schools we call them public schools here but we mean fee-paying places like Eton um, and their education at these places is very typical prototypical for the time for this class of people which is they study whatever subject they're good at which is which includes in, in their cases it's all maths and a bit of biology but they also absolutely study the classics so they then all go to Oxford or Cambridge so this 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 route from the top public schools Sorry, private schools like Eton and then to Oxford or Cambridge where they study maths and classics. So we don't have the majors and minors system in the UK today. But back then, it was effectively the same as what you guys do now, which is a specialist topic, but also a topic that you're not allowed to ignore. And in that case, it was Greek and Roman civilization. And they all venerate with absolute again a religious fervor but not a very sophisticated classical understanding or scholarly understanding they venerate the greeks and the romans and why is that well i speculate that's because these are societies whose structures are immutable where they're, they're heavily class based they're not democratic in any way and when people talk about the greeks inventing democracy they really invented democracy for about four decades for a tiny proportion of 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 men only so it's not really you know democracy as we think of it today but societal structures are rigid there's no or very little um, class mobility and a phrase that i use in the book which i think is quite useful is that this is for the brits this is a radical solution in order to maintain the, the the status so it's both conservative and radical at the same time we have to do something extreme In order to preserve the status quo and that's what eugenics always is it's a preservation of the the hegemonic status quo by the powerful uh, against whoever they want and it's always starts as, as we started this conversation it always starts in a positive way right we want people society to be better but then it always in all cases where it's either enacted or discussed it very rapidly almost instantaneously becomes well it's us that needs to be protected and who needs to be purged or prevented from reprodu- reproducing well let's start with obvious physical disabilities then let's start with people with then we'll, then we'll go to people with mental health issues which at this time of course is very vague and they use bucket diagnosis in terms like feeble-mindedness which you know really doesn't mean anything today but um, uh, or um mongolism so people with down syndrome today and then it becomes alcoholics and inebriates and um Women with menstrual troubles and, um, and, and and then it's racialized minorities. And if, you, if it's depending on where where you are in the world, it might be African-Americans or it might be, you know, the Irish. Um, and again, it's a coding. It's a pseudoscientific coding which says uh, the, these these people have biological predispositions. They are deterministic in their thinking and they say well if you come from this stock of people you cannot achieve the same heights as us because we are descended from the great civilizations of greece or rome w- one thing that is different between the uk and, and and america is less an obsession with the classical civilizations although that is definitely in there but more an obsession with what is what, what is referred to at the time as the nordic races um, which becomes the Aryan races as white supremacy spreads back into Germany from America in the Weimar years and then into the Third Reich. But there's an absolute like obsession with the, the sort of the old stock Americans, people who come over in the 1700s rather than the 1900s, which I think is, I, you know, as a, as a Brit, a friend of mine who's American said something funny to me the other day. They said, <laughs> Americans think that 100 years is a long time, and British people think that 100 miles is a long way. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. So, so when you when you know when, when, when you look at these sort of these figures who are old stock Americans who've come over in the 18th century, well, I, I live in a very uh, undistinguished house in quite a nice part of southeast London, but my, my house was built in the 19th century, and so this this old stuff for us is just very normal. And I think that I think it's sort of amusing that you've got these people like davenport and like madison grant and the Rockefellers and the carnegie's and these are the upper classes these are the aristocrats and they're the ones saying well we're americans and all these new people coming over they're not americans and they need to be restricted
0: well well, i mean we're 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 edging all around the uh, there was a there was a question i was going to ask you about why this book because but we're, we're, we're surrounding the answer to that. I feel like we're surrounding the answer that your your last book was how to argue with a racist, how to argue with a racist, which no one would wonder, Adam, now why? Why this book? You know, because, well, I mean, last week's news story is our ex-president having um, dinner with uh, an anti-Semite who brought along a. A, a, a black person famous now for antisemitism who blotted along a, a white supremacist and they seem to be united over their hatred of jews i mean we have a, a racism problem hatred problem pretty obvious and um i was going to ask you i'm like but eugenics so why right now but i feel like we've surrounded that question right like you're saying why right now because really this is really about the same issue of people finding a way to say that the people who've always had power should still have power. I mean, I guess that's why you called it control, right?
1: Yeah, I think I th- the, the control, the, the title itself, I think it refers to effectively the desire by powerful to exert control over biology. And by biology, we mean re- reproduction. And it's a tricky thing to do. You know, as well as I do, that, that, that we've spent well, hundreds of years. But even in the 21st century, we've got a sophisticated understanding of genetics. What do we know? Not that much. We know how little we know. Right. Our jobs are never going to be complete. Um, but that confidence in the early 20th century of those eugenicists, who really knew enough, they felt that they knew enough that they could control evolution or biology more broadly to the extent that they could remould society the way they wanted it to be now the re- when you say why now I, the, the the answer to that is well eugenics is an old idea it's just given a new name and given this sort of this turbocharge with science in the 19th and 20th century with the the beginning of the study of evolution and then the beginning of the study of of, of genetics but it's a thought It's a a type of thinking, it's a way of thinking more than anything else. And it predates the word eugenics by thousands of years. And when the horrors of the Holocaust become known to the world in 1945, the word eugenics, as you said in the introduction, begins to become toxic. And in in the following decades, it goes from being something which was supported across political divides and across society, as being an admirable thing, a desirable thing, it begins the process of switching to being a toxic idea, a grotesque thing, as we see the Holocaust um, uh, shown to the world, the atrocities of the the Nazis. But that doesn't mean that that way of thinking went away. And I think what we have seen in the last few years, so the answer to the why now question, is I think we've seen the re-emergence with populism In the West and around the world, in fact, we've seen the reemergence of ideas of racial purity and and, um, ancestral purity, which are all sort of inherent to the eugenics cause Um, uh, combined with. Um, another sort of turbo charge for that way of thinking with new genetics with our understandings of polygenic disorders with our, our medical interventions reproductive interventions which include things like embryo selection for specific diseases and um, and and into the era of embryo selection for specific traits so not not diseases which is outlawed in most of the world but not in america not in singapore and we now know <laughs> we know <laughs> Yeah, for the listeners, you were doing an air punch there. An ironic <laughs> air punch. <laughs> um, and I, I think that it's a it's a glib cliché, but it's true that we study history to inoculate ourselves against repeating it. And I think that... So, so I know that many of your listeners will be scientists. And I think that scientists often make pretty bad historians. I think they often, we often don't treat the evidence of history with as much regard as we treat the evidence of, of, of science. And um, and I think often we think of history as being perhaps an easy subject, an easier subject than, I don't know, doing polygenic scores or trying to understand metabolic pathways or quantum physics or, or whatever. But what that means is that our superficial understanding of our own history is is part of the reframing of the ideas that come back and back. And so I see these conversations today in the 21st century, in the third decade of the 21st century, which are effectively totally, uh, totally the same as the types of conversations that people were having in 1910 and 1912. And I think that's it's interesting in a scholarly way, but it's also terrifying when you follow the repercussions of that. Way of thinking into the Second World War. So, you know, I've taken this stance in the last few years, which I absolutely am wedded to and will defend, but annoys a lot of scientists, which is that science is inherently political and there's no way for it not to be. And the ideals, of science, the principles of, of, of the scientific method that we began developing in the 16th, 17th, 18th century and so on, those are noble and they do they are designed to extract our personal and psychological and cultural biases from our own understanding of nature, right? We minimize them. We don't eradicate them because science is done by people. And until it's not done by people, then it will always be political. So this history is, you know, our field as geneticists, is it's a hundred years old. Right. Um, But the study of our interest in inheritance and in biology and in sex and families, well, that's 10,000 years old. And so we're struggling against, you know, a a new bit of science that we barely understand. We're contesting 10,000 years worth of cultural baggage. So, you know, like I said, we're going to be employed for a while yet.
0: Yeah, I'm not worried about job security. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I I I think that's a, a a brilliant summary. I I think there's a way. There's an old joke here. Maybe I don't know, Catskills probably not a reference for you, but like these sort of um, old school cheesy hotels where people would go, and there was an old joke about uh, asking somebody if um, uh, that there were two people complaining over dinner at the Catskill hotel, hotel, and one of them says, oh, the food here, it's so terrible. And the other one says, yes, terrible, and such small portions. And I always think of that joke, that terrible joke, when you talk about eugenics, because we talk about, first we're like, the science, it's so terrible. And then it's like, and also, it's off, you can't use it that way. It's sort of like, there's sort of one whole thing of like, Oh, the science is terrible. We don't understand it. It's a misuse of the science then also. And also, it's going to be awful when we use it correctly. Um and I, I think that's why it's a very complicated topic, right? Um, that, mm. that that you're saying you spend a lot of the book disproving the idea that, in the way that the original eugenicists imagine, that we could breed better people. There's actually a section at the end where you compare animal breeding and human breeding, and it's it's very convincing. Let me just say it's very convincing that yes. this notion that we could breed better people is um what is it you say we'd we'd have to really reimagine <laughs> what we were willing to put up with in terms of how we treat people
1: right yeah, Yeah. Rad- radically and Im- radically improve the way we treat sheep or 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 radically lower. The acceptance levels for human termination yes. so you know there's, there's a there is a uh, animal breeding the comparisons with animal breeding and humans is ancient that comes up in plato in republic when he talks about as his version of of eugenics so that's what the third century bce and then all the way through the the 19th and 20th century animal breeding. the comparison with animal breeding is essential for the eugenesis and and right the way through the 20th century and into the 21st, Richard Dawkins, a man who has a great intellectual legacy, but hasn't really engaged with a lot of these topics in, in in any sort of contemporary depth for a while now. A couple of years ago, and I use this in a book as a jumping off point to ask the question, well, could you breed humans in a eugenics way? He he tweeted, of course, you can breed humans uh, because we breed Cows and dogs and sheep and roses and and we're biological. I'm paraphrasing now. I've got the direct quote in the book, but but so why why wouldn't you be able to breed humans, right? And it's an interesting way of framing it. It's also the same way that it's been framed. He's he's opposed to eugenics. He's very clear about that, of course. But many of the the protagonists of of and supporters of eugenics were using that as a positive way of describing the possibility of eugenic breeding for humans. So I use it as a way, as a starting point, that tweet from Dawkins, I use it as a way to actually unpick this very glib sentiment, which intuitively is correct. If we accept that Darwin is correct and evolution is a real phenomenon and that humans are animals, then we are subject to natural selection and therefore we must be subject to artificial selection. Chapter one, the origin of species. So then you say, well, what does that actually mean? And I spoke to farmers about this. I think a lot of the people who say this kind of thing, make this kind of comparison, don't actually know anything about farming. And I'm not a farmer. I come from the countryside. So I you know, knew, knew agriculture a little bit, but I can't pretend to be a farmer. But the point is that far, in, in many ways, bread, livestock and agriculture is the opposite of what we want, what we might want for eugenics because sheep are bred in one particular way to maximize one particular trait at the expense of all others in every environment apart from the one that they're raised in and farmers know this and they know that if they keep breeding the same trait in they will create other genetic abnormalities and problems in the sheep and those ones have to be culled so they've got a particular method of breeding traits and then outbreeding them and inbreeding them again and, and so on so that they have effectively what you know you and i in biologists know as 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 a uh, as like a monoculture, basically. A sheep that is bred to live in a uh, in uh, one particular grassland won't survive particularly well in, in another. Um, a rose that Dawkins uses as an example is a, is a great example. Roses look the way they do, as beautiful as we think they are, because they've been bred to be like that over thousands of years. But roses grow in particular soils that need to be nurtured and looked after and tended to. Humans' great strength as an organism, is our diversity and our um, adaptability. So, yeah, sure, we could breed a human to be as perfect in a monocultural way as as a rose. But in order to get to that point or as as milky as a Frisian cow, but to get to that point, we'd have to go through round after round of selection where thousands of generations (laughs) of humans would have to be killed or selected and so i asked the question what is the number if you want to make if you want to make this comparison if you say of course humans are are evolved and mutable what is the number of humans you're willing to kill in order to direct a particular uh, trait to improve the quality if if you're using agriculture as as your comparison because i think as soon as you point that out the answer becomes oh yeah okay it's it's none isn't it (laughs) the answer is none at all and then there's a more sophisticated response to that, which is when you encourage, you incentivize breeding of particular demographics. You can do that by, you know, tax breaks or uh, R. A. Fisher, um, one of the founders of our field, he he did that in the nineteen twenties. And indeed there are policies in around the world, in countries around the world, which encourage women to have more children or fewer children with tax breaks or or other financial incentives um do, does that count as eugenics I, I i don't know it becomes a sort of semantic argument at that point but it's all part of the same framework of thinking which is how do we exert control over the biology of society of individuals and of populations uh, in order to improve it and i again i i do have a political valence in my thinking i won't deny that um but i'm trying to approach this as a scientist trying to approach this topic as a scientist and say, we'll talk about the ethics and the philosophy and the politics aside, but is this actually possible? Because I'm pretty sure, having done this for 20 years or so, I'm pretty sure the answer is no.
0: There's another famous Dawkins tweet. It's going to lead us into like a tough area. I think you know what I'm talking about because you're you're nodding at me. So he famously tweeted, some people should just really not be on Twitter, by the way, because... He was a legend, and he's done himself some harm, but is a legend, but has done himself some harm. Uh, He tweeted that uh, again. I'm gonna have to paraphrase, but of course I would terminate a pregnancy with Down syndrome. Why wouldn't I? It was something along that. And and um, uh, to say that that got a lot of pushback is sort of an understatement. The suggestion being why on earth would you have that child when you could have a quote-unquote better child? Uh, Which brings us into another piece of eugenics that I think is very difficult and which you actually um, on page 13 ruled out (laughs) as saying, I don't think that's eugenics um, Mm. because there's personal decisions. Uh, Of course, that's something as a genetic counselor that we deal with all the time. And Mm. it's just never gotten any easier and you have a very interesting comment on page 225 where you said every potential mother now has a choice to decide is a life worth living and i think what people objected to most strenuously with dawkins comment is the easy assumption that one life was worth living and another life wasn't and that that was uh, patently obvious to him and should be to everybody else whereas of course but I know from the book that that is not your approach that um, nor is it my approach nor is it my feeling about um, it's not just Down syndrome a whole range of uh, people who have different abilities different uh, ways of being in the world different um, differences period writ large um, mm-hmm. So the hardest today question for me in this eugenics is if it's being done individually by a pregnant person or a couple or whatever making a decision about what they want in their life, does it still carry the same historical baggage? Does it still, you know, can we say to people is it a part of reproductive rights can we just say to people if they if they should be free to decide if and when and how they have children are they also uh, is there a who in there are they free to decide who they have as children that's that's the hardest question for me because i i can't come down easily on one side like is that a liberty or does that lead us to the place which i think was the lesson of what you were talking about with the where the eugenicist history ended in the nazi camps where we all were slapped across the face with the understanding that to say that some lives are not worth living is ultimately to to say that you can dehumanize certain people and 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 that was like this unbelievable extent of like so that their pain doesn't matter their suffering doesn't matter their lives don't matter I don't expect you to be able to answer this
1: because it's an unanswerable <laughs> question,
0: but maybe you'll speak sure. to it a
1: little bit. Yeah, it, it is the hardest question, and I th- I think it's it's worth unpicking so many of the points you you've just raised, and uh, there's there's a number there's a couple of things I need to say as well that, that when I say that I don't think this that for example. A termination of pregnancies on detection of Down syndrome i I say that I say as you say on page thirteen that that I don't consider that to be eugenics. I'm not a hundred percent wedded to that, so I spend a lot of time talking to parents and campaigners, particularly of Down syndrome because I think Down syndrome presents a unique um, uh, case study in in this discussion for reasons that we we can talk about in just a minute but i i i I'm, I can be quite bombastic about certain things that I feel confident on, but I also think it's really important to be nuanced and to to listen to different points of view. And in fact, one of my main a, a parent of of, um, of of a kid with Down syndrome was was one of my main consultants for this section of the book, and she and I ended up disagreeing not falling out but disagreeing she thinks i'm wrong about it not being eugenics and i have decided to go with it not being eugenics but you know what i I, i'm not so wedded to it that i'm going to fight about it um the reason i make that uh, the reason i say that and the justification for my view is that eugenics is a specific term which is state imposed so it's top down and where is the choice to terminate a pregnancy um comes from the parents but again it's not even as clear-cut as that because what we're really talking about is what you mentioned a minute ago which is how we value individuals in in society and people who's historically would have been terminated or, or killed whilst postpartum as, as children or even adults, or would have been sterilized. And the Germans in Weimar, in Weimar, Germany, came up with a term for it, which became central for the Nazi eugenics and race hygiene programs, which is Lebens, Lebens und Wertes Lebens, so lives unworthy of, of life. With, the reason Downs presents a particular case study for this is because it is. A, a condition which is detected very early and because it's a chromosomal abnormality and has this particular marker which is the nuchal fold the thickness of the of a bit of effectively a bit of the back of the neck it can be detected early on in pregnancy and with new scanning techniques becoming more and more available to uh all women in some some countries the choice to terminate is presented almost universally denmark and iceland the the birth rate of people with Down syndrome has effectively dropped to zero um, now it's difficult to argue that that doesn't feel like eugenics because what that means is that there is a group of people who exist who are part of society um, uh, and, and lo- loved by their families and and by others who will not exist in the future as a result of this medical and genetic in- intervention. Interestingly, in America, the numbers going in the other direction, and that's but that's even more complex because with the adoption of with, with the with the in with Roe versus Wade being repealed and other stricter abortion laws um, coming into play, there are, well at the time of writing it was seven. I think it's now thirteen states. It is now illegal to abort a fetus after diagnosis of, of Down syndrome.
0: Well. That's gotten very complicated since most of those states simply now uh, make all abortion illegal. So post Dobbs, so there are these what call reason bans, and you're right, 13 of them. Um, But in many of them, they've been superseded by stricter abortion limits, which is what the people who wrote those bans always had in mind. But I don't want to stay on on this because uh, the. That's that, as we say, is a different show. Abortion in the United States, but yes, it is true between the increasing age of people at first birth and uh, abortion restrictions and so on. There's reason to assume that, and 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 actually, very different reactions to a diagnosis of Down syndrome among different communities in the United States. The demographics of Down syndrome are changing, but not necessarily not at all collapsing right so they're very different things
1: yeah and and incidentally i'm not sure that i obviously you know we could spend hours talking about abortion and roe versus wade and but i don't think that history is unconnected with the history of eugenics at all and indeed clarence thomas cited in in a in in a supreme court document you know an official document at the top of the the top of the um, legal framework in america cited abortion as a tool of eugenics but that may be a different conversation but we should continue talking about yeah. Down syndrome for a, for a few more minutes um another aspect of down syndrome which I think is important to recognize is that it is it, it has a singular effectively a singular cause which is an extra chromosome 21 but an enormous variance in impact um, and and what we what might call penetrance in genetics, where um, the, the the range of intellectual abilities and and health issues and lifespan is enormous with people who are all trisomy 21, people with Down's, and the, the socioeconomic status of the people into which those those children are born is also enormously important and an important part of the conversation. So if you if you are wealthy and 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 have resources looking after a child with down syndrome who do require um, support from from most of their lives may be considerably easier than if uh, a child was born with severe um, uh, uh, severe symptoms as a a severe conditions as a result of trisomy 21 born into a a low uh, impoverished or low socioeconomic background and, um, and again, I mean, I, you can see I'm tying myself up with knots just trying to talk about it because it's so hard to to come down either either side of of of, of this as a question because there isn't really sides to it. It's, a, it's an incredibly complex, messy human um, uh, um, conversation, a discourse which involves people and i think that the most the best conclusion i can come to and i i, I deal with that chapter in it, that idea in it's pretty short and people have criticized me for not really grasping the nettle on it as hard as i should and maybe they're right but it's partly because it's so it's so hard but it's also because i think ultimately the question is not about medical interventions it's about who we value and one thing that is changed and i think is progress because i am a progressive is that the recognition of people with disabilities in society has fundamentally changed in in the last hundred years or so? I, I I'm only framing it as a hundred years because that's how long eugenics has been around, and so people with um, with atypical behaviours or disabilities who hundred years ago would have been terminated at at birth or as adults or sterilised and not asked not not allowed to reproduce in Dozens of countries all around the world are now considered valuable members of of society that we shouldn't um, say you don't get to reproduce because you don't look like me. Um, So that's the sort of framing of this as a societal conversation. And you can tell, listeners will tell, I find this hard. We should find this hard. I don't have answers to this, Um, but I think it's important to, to recognize the history and the underlying science in order to frame an intelligent discourse about it
0: yeah i mean so you 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 talk about a lot of these characters in your book for a field that came from a bunch of uh oddballs racists and just sort of like collectively ignominious group the founders of of clinical genetics you know the, not just Golden, but particularly here davenport laughlin did the, the Yeah, they can go on and on. So uh, an embarrassment of our sort of uh, field's ancestors, I would say that today, as a group, there's a really strong desire for genetics to be a force forward in the world, you know, for for it to make people healthier and give cures and and, and to um, also showcase our linked ancestry our commonality rather than our differences and so on i'd say that's a very strong tenet within contemporary genetics i know
1: yes, people could i, I agree completely the, the reason i do genetics is because i well not just because it's by far the most interesting science but because i think that science serves humanity and for as you say for health and disease but also for evolution and 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 for creativity and technology going forward I still think it's the most important subject that I have devoted my life to so absolutely I'm not you know I'm, I'm pro genetics
0: yeah and so today sort of um turning back to the subject of the book do you think that uh, there is a particular way in which because we did touch on the fact that these sort of blood and soil issues, you know, this that this sort of nativism is resurgent in the world today. I mean, it's overwhelming in the United States, but really, you know, uh, look all around the world and uh, Hungary and Italy and Russia and so on. And um, I know it's always been there. And maybe it's just sort of a cranky old lady's point of view on this, like, oh, it's, It's worse, it's so much worse, but it feels like a a moment in time uh, where where these ways of thinking. And so do you feel, having spent some time on this subject, that there's a message to the people working in genetics today? Uh, Because I totally agree with you. All science is political, and this science is particularly political. We see it when our work is... Ripped out of our hands and used in ways that we're uncomfortable with, you know, um, as it as it certainly has been. So, is there a message for a way to us to push forward that is helpful in the world?
1: Yeah, I, I think so. And and I think that the reaction to my work in in scientific racism and now in, in eugenics is mostly been positive from from our peers. And and I think there's several strands to that. The, the first is that, um, you know, most people who become professional scientists or geneticists specifically, they don't do it because they want to know the pernicious history of our field. And they will have almost certainly some understanding of that history because it's such a young field. And our intellectual forebears are only two or three generations from us. So the greats like Pearson and Fisher and Haldane and even Galton are only really, I mean, those are my intellectual great, great grandparents. <coughs> Excuse me. those are my intellectual great great grandparents at ucl but in particular but also you know by extension all around the world so we know their scientific histories and their scientific legacies but when far less good at recognizing the social context in which many of their ideas were developed and fisher and pearson were it, it, fairly extreme, lifelong committed eugenicists. Pearson was an extreme racist. Galton was uh, uh, was racist in every direction. Pearson was particularly anti-Semitic. Um, Haldane does not is not with it does not come out of this clean. He was anti eugenics mostly and wrote a very powerful book uh, called Heredity and Politics in which he he dismantles many of the ideas of eugenics in response to the American eugenicists, and, and what this was 38, so what was emerging in Germany. Haldane is not immune to criticism as well for, for his politics. He remained a Stalinist. He was a communist and remained a Stalinist well into the 1950s, and when the horrors of communism under Stalin were revealed to the rest of the world. So, you know, he doesn't get a pass either. And I know people say, well, they were men of their time. But I think that's a fatuous argument. Some some of your listeners will probably be thinking we can't judge them by their, their standards, by, by our standards. We have to judge them by theirs, which is absolutely true. But more often than not, that is deployed as a way of saying we're not going to talk about this at all. And I think that's the problem in genetics, in contemporary genetics. We don't teach this stuff as a default. There is a weird anomaly within this. Um, and it sort of goes back to your question of why now? It, this is my history because I went to university in the galton laboratory at ucl in 1993 and i, I remained associated with that department well, I, i'm a lecturer in that department now to this day um, and so we were actually taught this history but what i didn't realize until about five years ago was that we were almost unique at ucl for teaching that history Because it happened within our walls and much of the scholarship about Galton and Pearson and Fisher was simply held on Gower Street at at UCL in central London. So it was only when I started to talk about this more broadly and sometimes in in the context of my previous book about race, I began to realise that not only did the rest of UCL not know their own history, right? And it became a big sort of political football a few years ago, the last five years or so. But all of my genetics colleagues around the world, were asking me to come and explain this i I don't want to make out like i'm some kind of you know solo martyr who's enlightening the rest of our our field but it was notable that lots of friends and colleagues from universities around the world particularly you know ivy league places in in the states were saying you come and talk to us about the history of genetics because we don't have i've begun to learn about this but we do not have this in our in our undergraduate curriculum. And I feel that one of the positive messages of this era and and talking about this work is that we have to. We have to know our own history. Uh, We have to be cognizant of the way research, which appears to be neutral because we're only doing it because it's interesting, can be used. And the language that we choose, which is difficult in science because we make up words and we have jargon, but how that can... Convey ideas which reinforce the political hegemonies or the um, the, the structures and biases that are inherent in our society and in our labs. So I think as long as we begin to be aware of those things, then we can we we can work towards preventing them happening again. I also think that one of the most powerful arguments when talking to other scientists about this type of thing is that actually it actually makes for better data. You know just broadening it out a little bit we we talk about diversity in our workspaces and increasing diversity in in our labs for reasons of social justice which i happen to agree with but also we should what i found is very effective is if you talk about increasing diversity because without diversity in your lab spaces and your work you're actually doing worse science and i, I think in ge- human genetics it's really clear if you're using data sets which really only represent, you know, less than 1% of the global genomic diversity on Earth, which is what most of our GWAS data sets actually represent, what less than 10% say, you're not serving the people. You're serving some people, a tiny minority of people. Um, and so we can increase the power of our work in genetics and therefore increase the impact of science in service of humankind by embracing these ideas which are sometimes, which on, on, on one political end of the spectrum are revered and on and the other end of the political spectrum are are regarded as as anti-merocratic. So I think it's a discourse, it's a conversation. I, I know that the title of the book, How to Argue with a Racist, is deliberately pugnacious and it's not really about how, how to argue with a racist at all. But I think that it's, The the work that I do is partly historical because it's interesting and partly because I'm talking to our colleagues.
0: I'm going to finish this interview up by disagreeing with you on two points. One is I love the title, How to Argue with a Racist, and I do think it's about how to argue with a racist, which many of us really need. Uh, We we, we need that. You know, it's one of those cases where uh, truth is complicated and uh, false is simple. And so you get this fatuous simplicity and and you're left with this like, no, but give me 10 minutes and I'll explain to you why you're wrong. And what you really need is like 240 characters.
1: Um, What's well, a Darwinian phrase, isn't it? The best. But one of the nicest things about our field and these political arguments is that at the end of the day, Darwin, who was not also is not fully impugned from from historical problems. But he did get a lot right. And he was a he was very liberal in his thinking. But that line from The Descent of Man, which is that ignorance begets confidence more readily than does knowledge.
0: That's great. Yes, yes. Um, that's a should be a corollary to Occam's razor, right? Like, yes, but. Yeah. <laughs> Simplest explanation. But things are very complicated. So sometimes a simple explanation does not explain. Anyway, um, the second Minor point of disagreement, I was going to say, is in terms of our own field, knowing the history. And yes, I believe uh, that clinical geneticists, genetic counselors have some sense that like, oh, eugenics, that turned out really badly. That was bad. Eugenics is, you know, they they know the word is bad and they and we, we honestly we use it now to apply to the things we don't like. Like, oh, that makes me uncomfortable. It's eugenic. But. We're being asked to make a lot of contemporary decisions about what is and isn't OK. You know, um, how are we going to use these new polygenic scores? Um, should we be applying them to embryos? Um, should we be applying them clinic? What do we do when a test is more accurate in certain populations than other populations? And in this case, the history is is, is really informative, uh, incredibly helpful to know. And to be honest, I don't know that it's universally taught. And uh, I I I think the the book ending on an advertisement. I think the book presents a readable um, and contained history and discussion, and is 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 less a didactic thing. Like it will teach you about some of what happened, but an, an entryway into conversation. And I would encourage anybody who works in this field um, that thinks like, well, I kind of have a sense, but I don't really know like what happened and who did what and and what does it represent to pick it up. uh, I think it's like I said, um, it's quick to read, but it provokes a lot of thinking and a lot of conversation as it did here today. So we are way over time, which I never mind because this was so much fun. Thank you, Adam, so
1: much. Well, thank you, Laurie. You're you're right, and um, and I'm I'm very grateful for the plug as well. We've made a radio series uh of it of it too, which are only halfway through, but for the BBC, and it should be available, um, to your listeners. I presume many of them in the states, and that's called Bad Blood, and it's a different version of the same story, different themes, but um. um it's it's been I'd like to say it's been fun to make, but uh, I, well, the subject is just not that you know it's not it's difficult to find joy in this.
0: <laughs> and yet, and yet, you do find some humor.
1: <laughs> well, I you hope so, and that's so kind of you to say humor. so. I am that's desperately great. I desperately want to write a book next about you know kittens or dogs <laughs> or you know something where I, I said this to a friend of mine the other day who who has um who's a who's a historian of of race. Uh, David Oshoget and we both have. I've got a whippet and he's got greyhounds. And I said, you know, sometimes you. Cl- I just want to write a book about dogs or hounds. And he said, yeah, you know, the greyhounds were used to trade um, for slaves in Tasmania when colonization reached Australia in the 18th century. I thought, oh god damn it, not even whippets <laughs> are immune from this. <laughs>
0: Oh man, I have an Australian Labradoodle, and I have to say that people who stop me in the park and they're like, "What kind of dog than that?" get way more than they bargained for. Well, explain <laughs> the <laughs> difference between.
1: Well, sit down. <laughs> I have slides.
0: I apologize, but let me explain to you the difference between the genetics of this dog and another type of Labradoodle, because I know you're really interested. <laughs> <laughs> My kids like, say to me, "It's like I that say, weird I'll woman say something.
1: with a nice dog again." <laughs> yes.
0: Go away, crazy person. <laughs> uh, my, my, I give my kids the last word. My kids, I, I have the tendency to start a sarcasm. Well, it's interesting. And my kids are like, we'll be the judge of that, mom.
1: <laughs> oh, that's so, I see. I have one as well, which my kids, they say, I say, um, well, I actually wrote about this in, and they're like, I'm not interested. Stop. Stop. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
0: Oh, the glazed eyeball look. Yeah. All right. <laughs> Thanks, well, before uh, a we go on to do before we launch into the, the, the perils of parenting, let me say goodbye to our listeners. Thank you very much. And uh, all the usual stuff. Go to the website. Follow me on Twitter if Twitter still exists when this comes out again. Take care, everybody. Bye bye.